Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The generosity of our members and friends is life-changing for young investigators, lung patients, and patient families. Donations made to the ATS will help to support our mission to fund emerging investigators in cutting-edge research, sustain education and public health initiatives, and reduce health disparities to advance worldwide respiratory health. If you would like to make a contribution to the ATS to help support our mission, please visit thoracic.org go slash donate. That's thoracic.org go slash donate. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of Scholarly, brought to you by the journal ATS Scholar and the American Thoracic Society's Section of Medical Education. My name is Avi Cooper, and I'm the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship Assistant Program Director at The Ohio State University and a member of the podcasting team at Scholarly. I'm joined today by Dr. Neil Chasen, lead author on the article titled Virtual Interviews and Their Effect on Cognitive Load for Graduate Medical Education Applicants and Programs, published in ATS Scholar in April 2021. Neil, it is so good to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Avi. Uh, I really appreciate the invitation and I uh, look forward to talking to you today. Do you mind introducing yourself and sure. what you do? My name is Neil Chasen. I uh, work at the Cleveland Clinic right up the road from the Ohio State University. So uh, Avi and I are uh, neighbors, uh, so to speak. Um, and I have been a program director in critical care for the last three years here. Uh, we have a fairly large critical care program of 12 fellows. And uh, before that, I was the associate program director for pulmonary and critical care, which uh, I worked with my colleague and mentor, Ren Ashton, uh, to uh, co-administrate that uh, program. That's great. And do you mind telling me or telling us something that maybe others don't know about you or would surprise folks to learn about you? Well, I uh, am a pretty boring individual, but I'll uh, tell you a little story about uh, why I do or how I do what I do. So my, I spend about 60% of my clinical time doing pulmonary, uh, I'm sorry, doing critical care medicine, but my outpatient practice is in pulmonary hypertension. And um, I owe much of what I do today to my youngest son. I have four fantastic kids who are coming home from vacation with my wife tonight, so I'm looking forward to seeing them when they get home. Uh, but my youngest son uh, was the only kid who was born uh, with no real uh, emergency. Three of my kids, uh, it was always a disaster when they were born. My wife will tell you all about it. Um, and my youngest son was sort of the one that slid out real nice and easy. Everything was so to speak. Unfortunately, 24 hours later, we learned that he had um, pretty severe congenital heart disease and ended up having to undergo multiple surgeries to correct it. The good news about Dan is he runs like a gazelle today, is doing great. But uh, in the course of events, <clears throat> uh, one of the cardiologists who I met and I'm still very good friends with here uh, and I were talking and he uh, asked what I do. I told him I do pulmonary hypertension. I was brand new out of fellowship. Uh, I hadn't, you know, really uh, cut my teeth yet. And uh, I said, I do a pulmonary hypertension. And he said, oh, great. I have some patients I'll send you. Um, do you do congenital heart disease? And I remember uh, the 
old adage, fake it till you make it. And so I said, yeah, yeah, I could do that. And I uh, remember getting my first patient from him who was a univentricle patient, um, not, not somebody I'd ever seen in fellowship for sure. Uh, regretted my decision for <laughs> the entire time I was seeing that patient. But actually, it's turned into a wonderful relationship. We've actually built a combined a congenital heart disease pH center with cardiology here, which uh, myself and one of our cardiologists run together. And um, it is a place in medicine where I never thought I would be. Um, and I have my kid to credit for it. And I'm incredibly thankful for the people I've met, for the patients I've been able to work with, and uh, certainly for my son to introducing me to a new frontier. The thing, Avi, the reason I tell that story is not to promote congenital heart disease pH, but to tell people and your listeners that you do most of your learning after fellowship. And I always tell my fellows who sort of bemoan that they aren't learning this or aren't learning that. I say, don't worry, I didn't learn anything about what I did in fellowship. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really a testament to this lifelong learning principle that I'm uh, still living today. That's great. And that's what a powerful story. Um, thank you for sharing that. And you know, your, your origin story for, for how you ended up where you are today. And, you know, when you, uh, taking off your clinical hat and putting on your medical educator hat, you, um, you wrote this, I think, very powerful, insightful, and frankly, practical piece on how cognitive, the, you know, how, how the concept of cognitive load, um, can, can impact, virtual interviews. And so just to frame our discussion for today, you know, at the time of this recording, which is in May 2021, we as a graduate medical education community, we don't know exactly what the 2021-2022 recruitment season will look like with respect to virtual interviews, in-person, hybrid of the two. But I think we all suspect that applicants are going to be interacting in a virtual manner with programs you know, in a more robust and consistent way than could have been imagined, frankly, pre-pandemic. And honestly, I wonder if some of those changes may be here to stay because of a lot of the convenience and other things it allows for us as programs to connect with applicants remotely. And we, you know, we've all been living through the pandemic and all the myriad ways that it's changed our lives. But do you mind kind of zooming in on the educational aspects specifically regarding graduate medical education program recruitment for how the pandemic has affected us? Well, sure. And and in fact, you know. I don't have to remind anybody who is even remotely involved with medical education or program uh, leadership what this um, pandemic uh, did to change. Every single life in the world, I would contend, has uh, is fundamentally different today than it was in February or January of 2020, depending on where you're from. With respect to medical education, I think uh, the recruitment season last year was quite interesting. So. There were no doubt challenges. I remember uh, trying to figure out uh, how we were going to recruit. And because critical care is not, was previously not part of the match, we're going to the match this year, uh, we interviewed pretty early. We interviewed in the beginning of August. And so we were before most conventional fall match programs uh, and trying to kind of go it alone. So our institution was not really ready for virtual recruitment because they thought that things were gonna happen in September, so they didn't really care that this small 12, and it's not that they didn't care, they just weren't prepared. Uh, and that was no fault of their own, this was a major change. But 
we quickly had to not only uh, learn the technical skills of like, how do you do a breakout room in Zoom, right? Nobody really knew that before. It, it was there, but nobody was using it. To, uh, okay, how do we make this so that people don't get off the call and they're so tired that uh, they can't even remember what I said. We wanted it to be impactful. Those were the difficult parts. Um, and combine onto that, both our uncertainty and the fellow uh, applicants' uncertainty about what this interview process was going to leave them with. So nobody had any idea what the end result was going to be. I didn't know whether I would know a fellow applicant better or worse than an in-person interview when we got done with the process than uh, I had in previous years. So there was tons of uncertainty, anxiety about that. Um, but there are two real benefits that I think that the process brought on. One was certainly innovation, right? We um, were able to figure out areas of our interview that we either could cut or modify to make things more effective or more concise. I think that's good. The second thing is, is that uh, interviews for fellows are pretty, for fellow applicants, are actually pretty expensive. There's a lot of travel time, a lot of travel um, costs from planes and gas uh, and hotels. So fellows, you know, you probably remember back to years ago when you interviewed, you'd get in at 1030 or 11 o'clock at night, get up at 530 in the morning for a seven o'clock interview. You were so tired, you were barely able to make it. And then you were back on a plane that night going to work and probably on call. So you were fatigued and trying to pull a 30 hour call that or 28 hour call. So it just, you know, that's not healthy. And so it saved not only time, but money and also probably enhanced our workforce so that we could actually put our effort back into treating COVID patients and patients in the hospital rather than gallivanting across the country. There were, those were the benefits and the risks. Overall, I think, I don't know if I would want to repeat it, but I can tell you there are elements that we learned last year that regardless of what we go to in future years, as you mentioned, we will keep. And I think you also, you brought up a really important point that like, especially last year, I think programs, I mean, we were kind of learning, it's like learning to, we had to learn the alphabet before we could put words together, before we could write sentences and paragraphs, right? So I think we were starting at such a basic level. Um, as graduate medical education community, as a graduate medical education community of how to do this virtually, like, you know, I think that we, thankfully, I think we all learned pretty quickly, but there was definitely a learning curve that we went through. Um, and, 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 you know, and I think, and some of the stuff that you, you know, certainly you described, I think some, some cognitive load components to in-person interviews, <laughs> like cost, like fatigue, um, that are not applicable to to virtual interviews per se as much, but thinking about specifically about virtual interviews, you know, you framed your thinking through the lens of cognitive load and you described that the three types of, of, of cognitive loads that influence how we learn, how we experience the world around us. Do you mind kind of just reviewing the, the concept of cognitive load overall and those three types that you broke down? Yeah, sure. So um, cognitive load is a a sort of psychological construct that's a little over 30 years old. Uh, it was first described by uh, Sweller back in the late 80s. And um, 
the, the, the concept is that really information is processed by what I'll loosely term the working memory of your brain. And, and um, it's, it's a construct for understanding how we take information, whether that is information that we're learning about a subject like uh, physics or medicine or music or something that is an interaction such as uh, the interview. How do we process that so that we remember elements of it? And uh, Sweller really put this into three things that all compete for a finite amount of space or mental energy that you have. And those three things are intrinsic load, extrinsic load, and germane load. Now, let me describe those for a second. So intrinsic load is the energy that you spend to create a, a new, to, to learn something new. So for example, if you are writing a talk on pulmonary hypertension, for example, you may read a paper and you may get an element from that paper or listen to a lecture and hear something that is new to you. So that is an, that, that requires your intrinsic load. We have all had opportunities to have intrinsic load that is too high. Therefore, it sort of outstrips the mental energy that you have available. So something like that is you've probably been to a lecture on a subject that you're not familiar with. For me, it's like deep uh, statistics. You get about six seconds into it, right? And you can't figure out the math anymore. And so you just sort of shut down. Your, your brain can't, can't process that. On the other side, uh, mundane tasks uh, can have the same limitations um, that they don't actually offer sufficient intrinsic load to create a memory. So for example, uh, you drove to work or rode to work or walked to work this morning and probably have done that a hundred times by the same route. You probably passed a lot of people, houses, different things, but you actually probably could not remember what you saw on the way to work because it was kind of a mundane task. So insufficient cognitive load. That competes with extraneous load for this finite amount of energy. So what is extraneous load? Well, extraneous load is, for example, uh, how hot is the room that you're sitting in? Uh, is the room dims? Uh, are you tired, right? If you're, if you're falling asleep during a, a, a learning, then you're going to have a harder time competing. And then germane load, which I think is the more difficult one to kind of grip, is um, the mental energy that you need to integrate this new learning and connect it with information that you already have in your mind. So, uh, for example, you, you know, you might have a memory of, of some pulmonary hypertension concept that you learned in fellowship. And as you're reading this paper, you're connecting the dots with that and you're building upon prior information. You might have a framework which you're going to establish your new learning to organize it. That's all germane load. Those three all compete with each other to, for this finite amount of space. And the goal is, is that we want to maximize the available energy for intrinsic load, new information, and germane load. And we want to minimize the amount of energy spent on extraneous load um, because that really starts to push out those other two things which are important for learning. And just to make sure that that I, in my really kind of simple-minded approach here, understand this, these constructs, like I'm, I'm thinking about like a baseball player learning to swing a baseball bat or something. So like the skill of swinging the baseball bat would be the intrinsic load. The crowd at a baseball game distracting the player would be 
the extrinsic load and the germane load would be like reviewing videotape of multiple prior swings in the past or something like that. Yeah, um, but, putting those all together. Is that the germane load may be your prior experience as a kid in a wiffle ball, right? Or something like that in the backyard. So you may have had some swinging experience, but as your coach is teaching you how to uh, hit the ball more solidly, right? They are giving you steps to uh, swing level rather than, you know, the golf swing that you do as a kid kind of thing. So it's it's processing the new information with an old memory or construct. That would be the germane load, but perfect, perfect example otherwise. And so, and I, I think you outlined really nicely how the different aspects of the interview experience are, are impacted by each type of cognitive load. For example, having to assess a program's culture and kind of overall vibe from afar, while also learning the specifics of the program's structure that might be an intrinsic cognitive load. Time zone differences might be an extraneous load, but can you kind of summarize overall how you, like what aspects of the virtual interview you put into different of, of, of these three different types of cognitive loads? Yeah, so sure. So for example, the intrinsic load, as you said, is sort of sensing the culture of a program um, or uh, how do I, if I am trying to recruit a fellow to Cleveland, right, the intrinsic load that they may be uh, contending with is what is the cost of living in Cleveland? What does Cleveland look like if I'm coming from California or New Zealand or somewhere else like that? I, I have no concept of that. People may not know on a nice you know, on the internet that it actually snows in Cleveland, right? And so that uh, what you uh, imagine and what you what is reality might be different. And we'll probably talk about, you know, how too much extraneous load can cause you to flip back to what you previously thought rather than what your intrinsic load actually is bringing you. So the intrinsic load might be me showing on a map where Cleveland is or showing a picture of a snowstorm in Cleveland and what it's really like or a beautiful picture of a spring day in Cleveland, which uh, we have some of the nicest springs, I think, in the country. Those are all intrinsic load things that the actual process. The extraneous load factors, though, that I would uh, say apply to the interview would be um, if you remember, I mean, we all have this, right? You're on Zoom from home and you're on a wireless thing and it was a little bit buggy. And so you say, what What did you say? Uh, I didn't hear you. You're disconnected. Or your dog is barking in the background at the mailman. Or my dog is barking at the mailman, right? And you're trying to hear me or process. And so there are things that take us away from gathering that intrinsic load. And as I said before, you know, maybe the germane load is how familiar are you with this interview process online? So if you haven't ever done an interview on a Zoom session or on some other type of virtual session, the germane load may be that you're just not familiar with it. And so you're not quite sure where this is going and how to interact with it. And, and those things uh, create problems where you can't integrate what you're doing with what you already know. And that, that certainly kind of um, has face validity, kind of rings true from my experience from the virtual interview season, you know, last year that we ended up front loading a lot of the, the, the content that um, we kind of gave to kind of minimize that overload on the day of the interview. So we, you know, kind of, we had, you know, we recorded a, uh, like an overview um, that normally we would give on the day of, and, but we didn't want that to be on the, the day because we worried that that would be 
Um, I don't think we phrased it quite in this, like as eloquently as you did in terms of from cognitive load theory, but we didn't want it to overwhelm them on the day of the interview. So we could put some of those specifics ahead of time. They could have time to digest. And they, when they come for the interview day, they didn't, and they're worrying about their, yeah, like the, the dog in the background or the Zoom background and all that stuff. They don't have to worry about absorbing, you know, how our clinical track system works or things like that. Well, I appreciate you making the assumption that I might have been thinking in this framework on the day of the interview. What I was thinking on the day of the interview is, man, why am I so tired? I've only been doing this for a half a day, which was the length of our interviews. And normally at the end of an interview day, I'm totally charged. I've gotten to meet people. I'm super energetic. I was totally fatigued after a half a day interviewing. And I thought maybe, you know, maybe I got COVID, right? <laughs> but it wasn't the case. It was actually, so it was actually that um, the extraneous load of spending a significant amount of time on a virtual platform, which we've all gotten more used to, but we're probably all a little bit more fatigued from in general. We just don't recognize it because it's the new norm. But the reality is, is that when you, when I sat down and said to myself, why am I so tired? And I talked to my co-author, Ren Ashton, about it. We said, something must have changed here. And we, as we started thinking, and looking into it was when we understood the concept of cognitive load a little bit better. So certainly it was really a question that then led to the answer, not uh, that we had this all sorted out on the day of. <laughs> and, you know, you laid out six kind of extraneous load factors that are potential threats to a virtual interview experience for applicants. You said anything from time zone differences to monotony during the day, like you said, kind of just stuck in front of a virtual platform. So how did you and your program adopt to those factors and how did you maximize the experience of your applicants with respect to cognitive load theory, whether you meant to or not at the time? Well, we adapted to some um, really well uh, ahead of time and uh, we didn't adapt to some, which led to our sort of retrospective analysis of what worked and what didn't and uh, when we were writing this paper. So with respect to a not, a monotony, you know, it is really hard to sit uh, in a meeting uh, online or in any meeting really for multiple hours without moving. Now, when you're in an interview day, you can break that up. You can have noon conference, you can have lunch, you can have a tour, you name it. Um, when you're in a Zoom session, it doesn't matter whether you're meeting fellows or doing an interview or listening to a lecture, you're stuck at the same screen, looking at the same general square uh, in a chair or whatever for multiple hours, and that's monotonous. So like you all, we limited our interviews. Now, uh, we wrote in the paper that we think probably five hours is the limit. That was totally arbitrary, and that was based on basically uh, how long Ren and I could stand sitting still at one point. I would argue that that's probably, um, if we were to really do deep science, too long. See, that feels a little long, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, and I would argue that you know this year if we do virtual, we'll probably do it shorter. The second thing was uh, we tried to uh, shorten our interviews a little bit so that people didn't feel like they were on the same call with the same person forever. And I don't know whether that helped or not, but it certainly kept things moving a little bit more. From a connectivity standpoint, we made sure that all of our 
interviewers were on a wired service. We didn't want to have people cutting out because they were on their phone in the dead zone or at home. And, you know, there's six kids uh, also zooming in the background. And so we wanted people to be at work in a wired in environment. Now this year, probably internet is, you know, has risen to the challenge. So those concerns aren't as big as they were in the fall of last year or the summer of last year, but certainly they were big. The time zone thing we learned from retrospectively, we had all of our interviews in the afternoon last year and it was serendipitous that we did because we could have just as easily blindly put them all in the morning. What we didn't realize was that people were going to be interviewing, not just for, we're on the East Coast in the Eastern time zone. And so you obviously have to think about things like California and the and the West Coast folks when you are interviewing in the morning. But we had people interviewing from Hawaii, from New Zealand. And so all of a sudden, you know, we didn't we didn't. Uh, how do you do that? Do you do a midnight interview session? <laughs> And uh, we just didn't think about that until these people were on. The one guy who uh, fortunately has decided to join our fellowship, who interviewed from New Zealand, he was he literally was up at two o'clock in the morning interviewing with us, you know. And so if he has a bad interview, are you blaming it on the fact that he's up at two or are you blaming it on the fact that he just isn't a great fellow? Um, he, he interviewed wonderfully, I'm happy to say. But this year, what we're going to do if we interview virtually, which I'm almost positive we will, is that we've staggered interviews and offered different time slots for people to do that. Background, you know, everybody has, uh, so there's very few people anymore when you get them on a Zoom session where you're looking at the bottom of their nose or up into their nostrils, right? People have figured out, like, I need to put my camera up a little more, but it was almost ubiquitous that you were looking at up someone's nose or at their neck or, you know, right into the bright sunlight last year. Those problems, because we're just more facile with uh, virtual sessions in general, are, are, are much better. And I think we have grown a bit desensitized to background noises and distractions, much like you or I might be desensitized to an alarm in the ICU. Is it good? Maybe it's not good, but I think it's the reality of us having a lot more experience. And then finally, uh, what we talked about was nonverbal cues. So when you have 20 people in an interview, the gallery is a very difficult thing to recognize people's nonverbal cues. And a lot of communication we learned uh, comes from somebody's facial expression or reaction to something you say, even if they don't say something. Uh, somebody's uh, kind of looking out the window as you're talking or nodding off. Those are th those are cues that help to inform somebody's genuine interest or maybe confusion or scorn over what you're doing and can really alter how you uh, do things. The way that we interacted with that was we kept our interview groups really small, six people or less, because we didn't want to have a big gallery. We wanted to be able to see people. And during the interview, we asked people to turn their screens on. Is it perfect? No, but it was it was better than having 20 people at a time where we couldn't tell what was going on. And quite frankly, they didn't they couldn't tell either, right? And, you know, and I, I think kind of related to that and over thinking about group settings and bringing people together and the limits of the virtual interview experience, I think the the social aspect, like you mentioned, some of those softer interactions, conversations on the side where you can really 
you can connect with someone and learn more about them is you know, just don't happen um, with a virtual interview experience. And one of the other things that is much more limited is the the quote unquote formal social <laughs> interactions like a pre-interview dinner or some kind of formal gathering where people come together in a social uh, framework or social milieu. And it's really, I think that's a big opportunity lost or can be a big opportunity lost for if those don't happen well for applicants to learn about the the culture, the vibe of a program. Like I remember when I was interviewing at Ohio State, like one of the things when I came here is like everybody was smiling and I was like, this seems like a happy place and I would like to train here. And um, and I, and so I'm wondering how you th thinking about this through the cognitive load lens. How about those, you know, those social kind of meet and greet type events? How can program directors um, approach designing those events in a in an optimal way from a cognitive load standpoint? Well, I mentioned earlier, Avi, that um, the prior way we interviewed up till 2020 was that you had to do it in person. And unless it was your own institution or another one in your town, many people uh, were trying to fly in and out in a single 24-hour period. And if you were flying or driving, it was unlikely that you were going to get to a dinner the night before. So on some level, aside from cognitive load, if you just can't show up, <laughs> then you, you waste no cognitive load, but you don't get that experience if that was the social experience that was being offered. And so I think that virtual interviewing, while certainly imperfect and not natural to what humans do, offered a lot more access to some of those experiences than we previously had. I remember many years ago when I interviewed for fellowships, I don't think I went to a single dinner because I just couldn't get there, couldn't get off of work at that time. That being said, the conversations that you have are going to require uh, a lot more effort. And so when we think about that from a cognitive load standpoint, you are working really hard to make sure that you're either asking questions or listening and the same kinds of things. There's there's intrinsic load factors. There's a lot of germane load factors uh, to try to connect this with what may be your perception through your program director or through the internet is. So you have, you know, let me just let me just give you an example. You're at Ohio State and uh, as a resident, and you want to come to Cleveland Clinic for fellowship. So you've heard that the Cleveland Clinic is a big place up north but you don't know a whole lot else about it. You go on my website, you learn a little bit more and you form some impression. Now, you're gonna be working hard when you're on the interview to try to shape that impression, to add new layers to it and uh, understand it better through your experience. The social aspect, if one fellow shows up to the Zoom session may frame it differently. If every if 10 fellows show up, but nobody talks <laughs> or it's just a, you, you can't ask any questions, it may also frame it differently. So I don't think it's better or worse. It just uses different elements of cognitive load. And the question that I didn't answer in our paper was whether these things make the interview better or worse. We, we don't know that. It certainly makes the interview different but it's unclear whether the impact is better or worse. And I would argue that 
having spent the last year with you uh, doing things this way, I think it's made it better in some ways and worse in some ways, and, and it's just different. And one of the things that you mentioned in the paper that was really eye-opening for me and was surprising, um, and I didn't realize were the implications of cognitive load, is you talked about having an excess cognitive load can trigger a reliance on pre-existing biases, making snap judgments, um, kind of reverting to your own assumptions about things, and um, even unconsciously. And uh, this seems to have potential implications for interviewers and interviewees. Do you mind kind of expanding more on that? Sure. So first of all, um, w one thing I will say about the relative amount of good data or, or well um, done studies on virtual versus in-person interviewing or interactions at all from that standpoint were pretty limited at the point in time which we wrote this paper. And so I think that needs to be uh, recognized. The reference that I made to snap judgments or to reverting back to your prior data was made in the context of a study that I think was done around 2008, if I remember correctly. And it was looking at two different learning styles. One was of people who learned in an in-person environment versus somebody who learned in a virtual environment. And what they noticed was that people who learned in a, in a virtual environment were more likely to rate the speaker based on their prior um, credentials, where they were from, things that they knew about them prior to the lecture. Whereas people who went to the in-person lecture tended to rate them based on the quality of the lecture itself. The, the paper did not go into detail as to exactly why that was. Um, but it's an interesting observation, and it may be that if you're fatigued from having looked at a screen for four hours and uh, your dog is barking or your kid is trying to do school in the background, all these other extrinsic load things going on, you're simply not, you're simply not uh, capable of having enough space in your uh, in your RAM, so to speak, to process new intrinsic load, right? New facts. And so what you're left with then is simply what you started with before. And uh, when you make a decision, it may not be something that is conscious, but, uh, but that is what, in fact, they observed in the study. So I think that you and Rendell really did a really nice job in the paper laying out ways that programs can optimize intrinsic load and opportunities to kind of leverage germane load and minimize extrinsic load during a virtual interview. But do you mind giving a maybe your recommendations for best practices for programs to use in potentially this upcoming season that we may be doing a lot of this virtually? Sure. And and many of these are not limited to what programs can do. It goes both ways to programs and a fellow. So from a planning standpoint, obviously, this is the program's uh, responsibility. But as I said before, to keep it short, uh, we mentioned in the paper that five hours was what our thought process was. Uh, as I said to you, having spent more time doing this, I think that we'll probably spend less time. One thing that I know that some programs have done um, as a result of the pandemic and virtual interviewing is offer asynchronous interviewing. There are clearly advantages and disadvantages to that. 
uh, which I won't go into, but that's another option. The other thing is, is when you're interviewing, allow people to have a break. And, and this was something that we didn't recognize at first, first, but picked up on, and you may have seen this. When we kept our screen on, you know, I was often in the middle of something trying to write notes or prepare something. So I wasn't necessarily getting up and leaving. I was trying to get the next part of the interview day going. But people saw my screen on and they didn't want to leave their screen. Right. So they just sat there and it was like eight minutes of just silence, us just sitting there in this funny situation. So we actually started prompting people, please turn your screen off and mute yourself. Now, when your screen's off, then I don't know if they maybe they were still sitting there, but I presume they felt the liberty to get up uh, because they had been actually asked to go do something other than sit there in front of their screen. And to me, um, I think that 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 needs to be driven by the program. The fellows are applying to the program. They're sort of in a position of less power, and so they don't want to do anything which could jeopardize that, including potentially get up uh, during a break. Uh, if you're sitting there watching them do so. Um, things that I think we have largely done a good job at, but, it, but are good reminders, is uh, simplifying the visual aesthetics, so making sure you're not staring into the sun or your camera's not staring into the sun, making sure that your face is well lit from the front. Um, we actually bought all of our, uh, or I shouldn't say we bought all of our interviewers, but we bought those who wanted them uh, ring light so that, uh, you know, if you were in a darker office or at uh, home on your wired internet, you could take a ring light home and uh, highlight your face so you didn't look like some big shadow. Um, but the one thing I will say that we're still not good at, and, and we reminded our interviewers last year to do this, is many people have two screens or have a laptop but a bigger screen. And so they may be looking at the screen, but they're not looking at the camera. And in an interview, it's actually really important to look at the camera. So one way to do that, because if you're typing and, and trying to do an interview, you're invariably going to be looking at what you're typing, not at the interviewee. So I saw a lot of things where people would sort of put a face around the camera and um, or something to prompt them to actually look into the camera. It's unnatural to look into a camera, um, but when you don't, you've we've all seen the person who's looking, you know, a sconce to the side, but they're talking to you. They think they're talking to you, but clearly they're talking to a screen and it looks kind of silly. You don't want that to be you when you interview. Um, and then finally, I think one of the other things is um, to make I uh, to to uh, uh, make sure you're wearing something which is appropriate. And when I mean appropriate, I'm not talking about uh, Catholic high school appropriate. I'm talking about wear something appropriate that's not going to blend into the background. So, for example, you don't want to wear a white shirt on a white background if you don't have a jacket on or something like that, right? So generally simple colors are fine, um, but make sure that there's a contrast between you and the background because on a video, if you're not, um, if you have a navy shirt and you have a dark background or a navy jacket and you have a dark background behind you, it, you look like a little bobblehead on the screen <laughs> with your neck sticking out in your hands, but nothing else. And it looks silly in those simple things, right, which you may be unaware of, increase the extrinsic load for the person who's interacting with you. And that's a detriment to you in the interview process because they're focused on that and not on the things that you really want them to be focused on.
there's some other little simple things, but I would say we've approached and largely addressed a lot of the things um, that we talk about. So, for example, uh, knowing your platform, I think people are pretty savvy with Zoom or Teams or whatever uh, at this point in time. And, but uh, these other things which we don't do well uh, and can be enhanced in the interview process really can make or break your day as an interviewee. Neil, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed your article, enjoyed talking with you today and hearing your perspectives and thinking about the cognitive psychological aspects of virtual interviewing. And I think this will be really helpful, practical perspectives and advice for programs beyond pulmonary critical care medicine, sleep, I think, you know, outside ATS. Um, and uh, I think the, the wider graduate medical education community, I think it has a lot of implications for for us as a, as a GME community as a whole. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. You're welcome. Thank you very much for having me, Avi. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. So that concludes this episode of Scholarly. Please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast player of choice so that you can stay up to date on whenever new episodes are available. As a reminder, ATS Scholar is an open access journal, and you can read the article discussed today at atsjournals.org. Take care.